questions to the Prime Minister. Drew Hendry. Question number one, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister. Thank you. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, I'm sure that the whole House would like to join me in paying tribute to Lord Paddy Ashdown, who sadly died last month. From his service in the Royal Marines through to his time in this House, and then as High Representative for Bosnia and Herzegovina, he served his country with passion and distinction, and he will be sorely missed. In recent days, Mr Speaker, we have seen instances of threats of violence or intimidation against members of this House, including my right honourable friend, the member for Broxtow, and members of the media. I know the whole House will join me in condemning those threats. Politicians and the media should be able to go about their work without harassment and intimidation. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Drew Hendry. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I echo her comments on Lord Paddy Ashdown and, of course, the disgraceful behaviour of threats to politicians and journalists going about their business? Mr Speaker, like those in the rest of the UK, 235,000 EU nationals in Scotland were treated to a Christmas removal threat via social media from the UK Home Office, telling them to register if they want to stay in the UK after December 2020. Friends, neighbours, colleagues, people vital to the Scottish economy, shamefully told to pay to stay in their own homes. Can she confirm what will happen to those not registered by December 2020? And does she realise that for those affected, this feels less like a hostile environment and more like a xenophobic one. Yeah. Oh, Prime I, Minister. Can I say to the Honourable Gentleman, we recognise the huge contribution that EU citizens have made to our economy and to our society, and we want them to stay. And the EU settlement scheme makes, will make it simple, straightforward for them to get the status that they need. Uh, but can I say to the Honourable Gentleman also, uh, EU citizens have until June 2021 to apply. The cost of applying is less than the cost of renewing a British passport. But if he is concerned about the interests of EU citizens, then he can back the deal which enshrines the EU citizens' rights. Tom Purse-Glove. Thank you, um, Mr Speaker. The Government's commitment to the Armed Forces Covenant is commendable, as is its focus on reducing reoffending. Care After Combat is doing remarkable work in this area and their veterans have a reoffending rate of 8% compared to a national average on leaving prison of 45%, saving the government £20 million. Will my right honourable friend therefore convene a cross-government effort to not only shore up Care After Combat's work but to look to expand it nationally? Minister, has raised a very important issue, and first of all, I'd like to pay tribute to those who've served in our armed forces for their courage and their commitment. Um, I'd also like to pay tribute to the vital work that Care After Combat undertakes. My honourable friend is absolutely right on that. Now, we have a range of measures in place to support those who've served in the armed forces, who then find themselves in the criminal justice system, and prisons tailor rehabilitative work to the individual uh, needs, helping to reduce the risk of reoffending when they're released from prison. But the point my honourable friend makes about the excellent record of care uh, after combat is a very good one, and uh, I'm sure that a minister from the Ministry of Justice will be happy to meet with him to discuss this further. Jeremy Corbyn. 
thank you. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to Paddy Ashdown. He was elected to Parliament at the same time as me in 1983. He was a very assiduous constituency MP. He was a very effective Member of Parliament, and he and I spent a lot of evenings voting against what the Thatcher Tory government was doing at that time. Um, I also, Mr Speaker, agree with the... Um, agree with the Prime Minister on the point she made about intimidation of members of Parliament and representatives of the media outside this building as happened a few days ago when uh, the member for Broxtow and Owen Jones of The Guardian were intimidated outside this building and I send my support and sympathy to both of them. But we also have to be clear Mr Speaker that intimidation is wrong outside this building as it is wrong in any other aspect of life in this country and we have to create a safe space a safe space we have to create a safe space for political debate you see what I mean mr. speaker I'm calling for a safe space for political debate order we've got a long way to go the questions will be heard and the answers will be heard no amount of heckling no amount of noise will make any difference to that simple fact. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, I also am sure the whole House would join me in wishing a speedy recovery to the two British soldiers who were injured in Syria last week. The Prime Minister scrapped the Brexit vote last month and promised legally binding assurances would be secured at the December EU summit. She failed. She pledged to get these changes over the recess. She failed. Isn't the Prime Minister bringing back exactly the same deal she admitted would be defeated four weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah. Minister. Can I first of all say to the right honourable gentleman, I absolutely agree with him that there is no place for intimidation in any part of our society. Politicians do need to be able to have a safe space in which to express their opinions, many of which are passionately held. And I hope he will now ask his shadow Chancellor yeah. to withdraw or the remarks that he made about the former Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. On the matter, on the matter of Brexit that the Right Honourable Gentleman has raised, perhaps I, uh, let me update the House. The conclusions of the December European Council went further than before in seeking to address the concerns of this House, and they have legal status. I have been in contact with European leaders over, since then about MPs' concerns. These discussions have shown that further clarification on the backstop is possible, and those talks will continue over the next few days. But we are also looking at what more we can do domestically to safeguard the interests of the people and businesses of Northern Ireland. And that is why this morning we published a package of commitments that give Northern Ireland a strong voice and role in any decision to bring the backstop into effect. We have also been looking at how Parliament can take a greater role as we take these negotiations on to the next stage. And so I can tell the House that in the event that our future relationship or alternative arrangements are not ready by the end of 2020, Parliament will have a vote on whether to seek to extend the implementation period or bring the backstop into effect. And the Secretary of State for exiting the European Union will be saying more about this during his opening speech in the forthcoming debate. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, no amount of window dressing is going to satisfy members of this House. They want to see clear legal changes to the document that the Government presented to this House. The Foreign Secretary said the Prime Minister has not been asking for anything new in her discussions with the European Union. She doesn't tell us 
So doesn't that tell us that the Prime Minister has been recklessly wasting time holding the country to ransom with the threat of no deal in a desperate attempt to blackmail MPs to vote for her hopelessly unpopular deal? Prime Minister! The, the, the Right Honourable Gentleman can say what he likes about no deal, but he opposes any deal that the Government has negotiated with the European Union. He opposes the deal. He opposes the deal that the EU say is the only deal, and that leaves him with no deal. The only way to avoid no deal is to vote for the deal. If the right honourable gentleman, if the right honourable gentleman is uncertain about what I am saying, perhaps I can give him a tip. He might like to use a lip reader. The Prime Minister says that it's the only deal available. If that is the case, why wasn't it put to a vote on December the 11th in this House? Why has there been a delay of five weeks on this? The Prime Minister said she hopes to get written assurances before the vote next week. So can I ask the Prime Minister this? Will the changes she's looking for be made to the legally binding withdrawal agreement itself? Prime Minister... Can I say to the right honourable gentleman, we, as I have said uh, earlier in my remarks, and I have said previously, there are three elements that we are looking at. One is the undertakings and assurances we are looking for from the European Union, and those will be available. We intend that those will be available to the House before the House votes uh, at the end of this debate. We are also looking at what more we can do domestically. I have set out there is, uh, the Secretary of State will be clearer and, and uh, more detail will set out what we are going to do in relation to the powers for Northern Ireland and in relation to the question of the role of Parliament for the future. And we will be looking, we are looking to ensure that we can provide the assurance and confidence that this House needs in relation, in relation to the question that has been at the forefront of members' concerns in relation to the, uh, the backstop. But we've put a good deal on the table. Yes, we are looking for those clarifications, clarifications which I'm sure will ensure, will ensure that members of this House know that the backstop need never be used and that if, if, you, if it is used, it is only temporary. Jeremy Corbyn. Well, in the midst of that very long answer, I didn't hear the words legal changes to the document. That was what my question was, Mr Speaker. The Environment Secretary has said no deal would damage the UK farming sector. The Foreign Secretary has said that no deal is not something any government would wish on its people. The £4.2 billion of public money is being wastefully allocated to no deal planning. Will the Prime Minister listen to the clearly expressed will of the House last night, end this costly charade and rule out no deal? I've made it clear to the right honourable gentleman that if he wants to avoid no deal, he has to back, back a deal and back the deal. But he stands there and complains about money being spent on no deal preparation. So today, on Wednesday, he's saying we shouldn't be spending money on no deal preparations. On Monday, he said no deal preparations were too little, too late. He can't have it both ways. Either we're doing too much or we're doing too little. So perhaps he can break his usual habit and actually give us a decision. Which is it? Corbyn. 
This is the first time since 1978 that a Prime Minister has been defeated in the Finance Bill in the House of Commons. Last night the House made it clear in supporting the amendment in the name of my friend the Member for Normanton, Pontefract and Castleford that no deal should be ruled out. That is the position of this House. The UK automotive industry has written to the Prime Minister in December asking her to take no deal option off the table or risk destroying this vital UK industry. Given this House has now rejected no deal, will the Prime Minister protect thousands of skilled jobs in the automotive industry and others and rule out no deal? Prime Minister. Can I, can I say I, I recognise that the Right Honourable Gentleman welcomed the leadership that the uh, Right Honourable Lady, the member from Normanton, had given uh, on the issue that he's referred to. I just want to be clear that the amendment does not change the fact that the UK is leaving the European Union on the 29th of March and nor does it stop the government from collecting, from collecting tax. But he asked once again about the question of, uh, of no deal and about protecting jobs. We have negotiated a deal with the European Union that protects jobs. We have negotiated a deal with the European Union that ensures what is, what is raising concerns, what is raising concerns, he says, is the prospect of no deal. It is absolutely sensible for this government to prepare for no deal, and those preparations are even more important given the position taken by the right honourable gentleman. With an opposition front bench that is opposed to any deal that the yes. government negotiates with the European Union, it's even more important that we prepare for no deal. The deal protects jobs and security and delivers on the referendum, and he should back it. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, instead of backing industries in this country and protecting thousands of jobs in manufacturing and service industries, her transport secretary is awarding millions of pounds of contracts to ferry companies with no ferries to run on routes that don't exist and apparently they won't even be ready by the beginning of April either. This is the degree of incompetence of this government in dealing with the whole question of relations with the EU. The Prime Minister has spent the last week begging for warm words from EU leaders and achieved nothing. Not one single dot or comma has changed. She's already squandered millions of pounds of public money on last-minute half-baked planning for a no-deal that was rejected last night. So if her deal is defeated next week, as I hope and expect it will, will the Prime Minister do the right thing? and let the people have a real say and call a general election. Prime Minister! Uh, no, we've put a good deal on the table that protects jobs and security. But I noticed, I noticed in all of that that we still don't know what Brexit plan the Right Honourable Gentleman has. I was rather hoping as he went through that he might turn over a page and actually find a Brexit plan. Because what do we know about the Right Honourable Gentleman? He's been for and against free movement. He's been for and against the customs union. He's been for and against an independent trade policy. He was a Eurosceptic. Now he's pro the EU. He wanted to trigger Article 50 on day one. Now he wants to delay it. He didn't want money spent on no deal. Now he says it's not enough. The one thing we know about the right honourable gentleman is his Brexit policies are the many, not the few. The NHS long-term plan is hugely welcome 
In particular, its recognition that GPs are the bedrock of the NHS. Does the Prime Minister agree that it's vitally important that we do all we can to support GPs to stay in general practice and that the education training budget must be urgently prioritised to support a wide range of healthcare professionals to support <coughs> GPs in their practices. Can I say to my honourable friend that he raises a very important point about uh, GPs? And indeed, of course, if he looks at the long-term plan for the NHS, which was launched on Monday, which is being made uh, possible by the £20.5 billion extra we'll be putting into the NHS in 2023-24, he will see that support for the workforce, including GPs, is a very important part of that plan and indeed a higher, greater focus on primary care which will be better for people in helping to keep them out of hospital uh, at any point in time 20 to 30 percent of people in hospital don't need to be there is an important part of that plan GPs are an essential element of that I assure my honourable friend that they will be part of that important workforce planning Ian Blackford Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I concur with the Prime Minister on her remarks and Paddy Ashdown and make the point that all of us collectively have a responsibility to make sure there is no intimidation in our public life? Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister delayed the doomed Brexit vote last year on the promise of written concessions from Brussels. Prime Minister, where are they? Can I say to the right honourable gentleman, I set out the position in my first response to the Leader of the Opposition. I suggest he should have listened to it. Ian Blackford. We're we're used, Mr Speaker, not to getting an answer, and there we have it again. What the Prime Minister promised was that we would get written concessions, that Parliament would have the opportunity to vote on that, and nothing has materialised. A month has passed, and nothing has changed. Mr Speaker... Last night, the Prime Minister suffered another humiliating defeat. When will the Prime Minister face the facts? There is little support for her deal or no deal in this House. The new year began without concessions. The Dublin talks failed without concessions. The debate on her deal restarts today without concessions. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister is frozen in failure, asking MPs to write a blank cheque for her blindfold breakfast. MPs should not be debating without the full facts. Is it this, or when are the concessions, not just clarifications? When would the Prime Minister guarantee that this House will see the full details before we start the debate this afternoon? The Prime Minister. As I said uh, in response to his first question, I set out the position earlier. I referenced, as he will know, the conclusions of the December European Council, which went further in relation to the issues that I had raised with the European Council than they had gone before, and those have legal status, but we are, of course, working further on those, uh, on those issues. But the right honourable gentleman can't get away from the fact that if he wants to avoid no deal, he has to be willing to agree a deal. The deal that is on the table, the deal that is on the table that the EU has made clear is the only deal, is the one that the United Kingdom government has negotiated with the European Union, and if he really wants and is concerned about ensuring that we can look ahead with a bright future across the whole of the United Kingdom, he should back that deal. Order. Closed question, Michael Fabricant. Question 11, Mr Speaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Prime Minister. Thank you. Uh, I was pleased to meet the Mayor of the West Midlands last October when my right honourable friend the Chancellor and I visited the King's Norton headquarters of ADI Group uh, and we saw firsthand the opportunities that apprenticeships can afford and that's why we're seeing annual investment in apprenticeships double to nearly 2.5 billion by 2020. It was also an excellent opportunity to see a successful West Midlands company doing its bit to give young people a career and I'm pleased to say that the latest statistics show employment in the West Midlands has risen by 276,000 since 2010. Michael Fabrican. Well, that's fantastic news, but I think the Prime Minister will agree with me that transport is also the key to employment. And I just want to raise the question of the rail line which lies between Lichfield and Burton, which is currently only used for freight. It passes the National Memorial Arboretum, which gets around half a million visitors a year, but they all have to come at the moment by road along the busy and congested A38. So, could I ask the Prime Minister that this rail line be upgraded to a passenger service, providing a valuable east-west connection from Birmingham, and would she also allow me to take her personally around the National Memorial Arboretum? Prime Minister! Well, can I, can I say to my honourable friend, I, I of course recognise the important role that the important role that transport links play in relation to prosperity and economic growth. And our rail strategy connecting people that we've published actually does look at how we can restore lost capacity where that does unlock housing growth, eases crowded route, meets demand and does offer good value for money, of course. Um, it's for local authorities and local enterprise partnerships to determine whether a new station or train service is the best way to meet local transport needs. But we will work closely with local authorities and local enterprise partnerships to take forward the schemes which they are interested in progressing. And in relation to the Arboretum, I will of course um, uh, consider a visit in the future and I think he's probably given me an invitation it's very difficult to refuse. <laughs> Martin Day. Thank you. Mr Speaker, UK officials at Dover process 10,000 lorries every day from the EU bringing in food, medicines and other goods. So has the UK government experiment on Monday with 89 lorries in a Kent car park given the Prime Minister confidence in her government's abilities to handle a no-deal Brexit? Prime Minister! The government is doing exactly what it is necessary and sensible for a government to do, which is making the preparations for no-deal and ensuring uh, that we test those preparations. But I come back to the point that if the honourable gentleman is worried about the consequences of no-deal, then he should back the deal. Mr. Kenneth Clark. Uh, Mr. Speaker, it, uh, it seems to be plain to anyone who's listened to the, most of the debates in this House that there is no majority for any proposition on our future relationships <coughs> with the European Union in this House of Commons except the majority that is clearly against leaving with no deal. Uh, I, I propose to uh, vote for the Prime Minister's withdrawal agreement, but I doubt whether it will pass. Uh, and if it is passed and we get into a transition, there is no majority or consensus on what the government is supposed to be negotiating for in the years that will follow that will settle our future political and economic relationships with Europe. So the Prime Minister has to be flexible on something. So would she consider 
if she loses the debate next Tuesday, moving to the obvious step in the national interest of delaying or revoking Article 50 First of all, can I say to my right honourable and learned friend that the, uh, he said that he referenced the withdrawal agreement and said that there was no uh, position in relation to what the future relationship should be. Of course, the uh, framework for that future relationship, in greater detail than many had expected, is set out in the political declaration, which is the instructions to the negotiators for the future. But the, I think in that, uh, in that circumstance, it is right that we consider the role that Parliament would play as those negotiations go forward in ensuring that we get that future relationship right. I believe it is possible to have that future relationship, which is deep and close with the European Union, but gives us the freedom to do what we want to do, which is to have independent trade policy and develop trade agreements and trade arrangements with the rest of the world. John Speller. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I welcome the crackdown on cold calling to fleece pensioners out of their hard-earned pension pots? But isn't this just dealing with the symptoms rather than the underlying cause, which is the ill-judged free-for-all pension changes introduced by her friend, the previous Chancellor George Osborne, which gave the green light to the shysters and the spivs? What are you going to do about that? Prime Minister... What the, what the changes, what the changes uh, that were made by, by the government and uh, introduced by the previous Chancellor of the Exchequer did was actually gave pensioners more flexibility and more freedom in relation to how to use their own money. Nonsense! And Gillen. Mr Speaker, every member of this House knows that drivers and commuters want greater investment to repair our roads and upgrade our existing railway services. Yet we are wasting money on a deeply unpopular project where the management has failed, the costs are out of control, and which will end up costing the taxpayer more than £100 billion. That's about £300 million per mile of track. Why can't we face up to reality, Prime Minister, and cancel HS2 and spend the money on the people's priorities for transport rather than on this overpriced project which will never deliver value for money for the taxpayer? Prime Minister. Can I say to my right honourable friend, first of all, we recognise the concerns that people have about their roads, particularly about issues like potholes in their roads, which is precisely why my right honourable friend, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, has made more money available to address those uh, issues. On the question of HS2, um, what HS, HS2 is not just about a high-speed railway, it is actually about ensuring we have the capacity that is needed on this particular route, because the capacity on the West Coast Main Line, we've already reaching uh, capacity. We're already seeing HS2 spreading prosperity, it's encouraging investment, it's rebalancing our economy, and that's 10 years before the railway even opens. We've seen 7,000 jobs created across the UK and 2,000 businesses across the UK delivering HS2, and it will bring tens of billions of pounds worth of benefits to passengers, suppliers and to local communities up and down the route. Sir Edward Davey. Can I thank the Prime Minister for her words about Lord Ashdown, our friend Paddy. Paddy was loved on these benches, and I believe he was respected across the House and across the country, and we will miss him deeply. Mr Speaker, an unusual thing happened last night. Conservative MPs and opposite MPs united. Leavers and Remainers united. 
united to back my proposal for a review of retrospection in a law called the loan charge, which offends against the rule of law and has caused misery to tens of thousands of people. So, in her role as First Lord of the Treasury, will the Prime Minister agree to meet with me and a cross-party delegation of MPs to discuss this new review into the loan charge? Prime Minister. The, the right honourable gentleman. First of all, I think he was absolutely correct. Lord Ashdown, the late Lord Ashdown, was deeply respected across this House uh, and across Parliament as a whole, and, and widely across the country too. Um, in relation to the question that he's put about the review on the, the issue on the loan charge, um, he, he goes like that. Yes, I got the point that he was trying to make. Um, but can I just make this point? He talked about opposition and, uh, and government MPs uniting. Actually, the government accepted his review into the loan charge. And I think the first stage might be for the Chancellor of the Exchequer to sit down with him and uh, a group of cross-party MPs to look at uh, how that review is being taken forward. Mr Ian Duncan-Smith. Mr Speaker, I'm not going to ask about Brexit, uh, you may be pleased with that. But... Happy New Year! Happy New Year! And, uh, and Happy New Year to all of you as well. Um, can I uh, say, I recently had the, to my right hand, the immense privilege of shadowing Dr. Imran Zia at our A&E department at Whipscross Hospital. Uh, it was a humbling experience to witness the dedication and fantastic skill of our doctors and nurses. Uh, but they work in buildings that are now well over a hundred years old and they know they need better facilities. Now I, I have to say to her that whilst the NHS, the department, has set the development of WHIPS at the top of the North East London priority, in December they announced our programmes across London for investment, yet again North East London was not included. So can I ask my right honourable friend, please, would she now visit Whipscross Hospital, would she see how important and vital it is to the area and would she work with our excellent uh, Health Secretary and work on the basis of a fantastic announcement on Monday to invest in those buildings and those facilities? Well, Prime Minister. Again, my, my right honourable friend has uh, issued an invitation that uh, it is. I will certainly look at the possibility of, of taking him up on that invitation. He makes an important point at the end there about the announcement that we made on, uh, on Monday. Uh, my right honourable friend, our right honourable friend, the Health Secretary, has heard what he has been saying about uh, the particular requirements of Whips Cross Hospital and will be happy to sit down and talk with him in more detail about that. And I'll certainly look at my diary and look at his invitation. Leila Moran. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'd also like to add my own sadness at the passing of Paddy and in his final weeks he was very concerned by the way that Brexit would play into Britain's place in the world. Brexit is clearly for example in Russia's geopolitical interest and it was chilling to hear Vladimir Putin parroting exactly the words of the Prime Minister on why we should not be holding a referendum to quote fulfill the will of the people. Meanwhile poll after poll show there is a majority for a referendum because people can see that her flailing deal is not in our national interest. So whose side is this Prime Minister on? Putin or the people's? Prime Minister! I, on, I am on the side of the people to whom this Parliament gave the vote on the decision as to whether to stay in the European Union. And, uh, and we will be delivering and respecting that referendum and delivering on Brexit. Maggie through. I'm delighted that we've been able to deliver on our manifesto commitment to introduce an energy price cap. 
Can my rightful friend outline how this price cap will benefit my constituents across Erewash? Yes. Well, can I say to uh, my honourable friend, the, the fact that the energy price cap has now come in, I think is a very important step that this government has taken. I think it's something like 11 million households will benefit from the price cap. It will, uh, it will be saving households money as a result of what this government has done, because we recognise the concern people had about energy prices, and it's this government that has acted to deliver, and her constituents in Erewash will see a benefit as a result. Jill Furness. Mr Speaker, many of my constituents are employed in the Sheffield Steel sector, a beacon of innovation and manufacturing. UK Steel, the body representing steel companies, has been clear that a no deal would be nothing short of a disaster for the sector. Will the Prime Minister confirm she will not be so irresponsible as to consider the option of a no deal and reassure my constituents who are worried about their jobs and their future? Prime Minister! To the uh, Honourable Lady, that I absolutely respect and and recognise the role that uh, uh, the steel industry is playing in the United Kingdom. As you know, over recent years, Government has taken steps to support the steel industry. She talks about the issue of whether or not we should leave the European Union without a deal. I have been working to ensure that we have a good deal when we leave the European Union. That is the deal that is on the table. And anybody who doesn't want no deal has to accept that the way to ensure there is no deal is to accept and vote for the deal. Hugh Merriman. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. On uh, Tuesday, I shall be voting for the Prime Minister's uh, withdrawal agreement. Um, But can I ask the Prime Minister to consider one particular aspect for which I must declare a rather rash... Order. 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 The question from the Honourable Gentleman must be heard. And as I scarcely heard what he said, I think the Honourable Gentleman should start again and deliver it. Yes? He should start again and deliver it in full. Mr Hugh Merriman. Mr Speaker, I wear my Arsenal tie. Unfortunately, the terraces here are not quite as well behaved as they are uh, at the Emirates. Um, Mr Speaker, as I was mentioning, I will be voting for the Prime Minister's deal on Tuesday. There is one particular aspect I would like the Prime Minister to look at, for which I have to declare a rather rash financial interest. It relates to page 33 of the withdrawal agreement where citizens' residency can either be provided free by the UK Government or commensurate to existing cost. I I rather foolishly, in a Brexit meeting in Bexhill, was so confident uh, that this would be free by the Government that I offered to pay the charge to one particular European citizen who was not quite as confident. Uh, Mr Speaker, my question to the Prime Minister is surely, given this was a decision by the UK public, Surely we should be welcoming our friends, our neighbours, our essential workforce from the EU and offering this charge free so that they can stay in this country at our cost. The Prime Minister. To my honourable friend. Um, Obviously, I recognise the concern that he's raised. The fee of £65 to apply for status under the scheme is in line with the current cost of obtaining permanent residence documentation, and it will contribute, of course, to the overall costs of the system. But applications will be free of charge for those who hold valid permanent residence documentation or valid indefinite leave to enter or remain, and for children being looked after by a local authority. And where an application is granted pre-settled status under the scheme, there will, from April 2019, be no fee when they apply for settled status. And as I said earlier in response to uh, another uh, member, the EU settlement scheme actually will make it simple and straightforward for people to get the status that they need. 
Yeah. Stephen Kinnock. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. This week, our cross-party group, uh, Norway Plus, uh, published Common Market 2.0, a clear plan that respects the 5248 mandate, addresses concerns about free movement, protects jobs in my Aberavon constituency, and helps to reunite our deeply divided country. If the Prime Minister's deal is rejected on Tuesday, will she then give the House the opportunity to vote on a range of the options, including Common, two, common Market 2.0, and will she be giving her benches a free vote on those options? Prime Minister. Gentlemen, as he knows, I am working to ensure that the deal that has been negotiated by the UK Government with the European Union is voted uh, positively on by this, uh, by this Parliament, because it is a good deal, it does what he wants, it protects jobs and security, it also delivers, delivers in full on the referendum result, which is a key issue. I believe we owe it to people to deliver what they wanted, which was control of money, borders and laws, and that's what, that's what the deal does. Jack Lepresti. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can I thank my right honourable friend for ensuring our manifesto commitment to scrapping tolls on the Seven Bridge crossing has been met. This will put £1,400 a year into the pockets of thousands of motorists, many of which are my constituents. And does she agree this will help transform the economies of the South West and South Wales? Yes, can I say to my honourable friend, I think this is an important step that uh, the government has taken. It is one that was advocated, I know, by individual members and and by the Secretary of State for Wales, and it will indeed, I believe, have a very positive economic effect, a positive economic effect on Wales, but also a positive economic effect on the South West uh, and indeed on constituencies like my honourable friends. Mr Clopet. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Local Government Association has produced figures showing that councils of all political persuasions overspent their children's services budget by £800 million last year. The figure for Sheffield was £12 million. This is totally due to the fact that the number of children in care has risen to a 10-year high. In the light of that pressure, does the Prime Minister accept that the £84 million over five years offered by the Chancellor in the budget is totally inadequate? And without extra funding, either these vulnerable children will not get the care they need, or the other important services, such as parks and libraries, will get further cuts at a time the Prime Minister has told us that austerity has come to an end. Can I say to the uh, honourable gentleman, he's quoted the 84 million. That was actually for a pilot, which is about keeping more children at home with their families safely. We did announce overall an extra 410 million at budget for social care, which includes children, and spending on the most vulnerable children has increased by over 1.5 billion since 2010. But we're also taking a number of other uh, steps. For example, the work that we're doing to increase the number of children's social workers, um, the appointment of the chief social worker for children. Introducing frontline and step up, getting quality candidates into social care uh, careers. These are important steps. The Honourable Gentleman talks about money. Actually, it's about ensuring that the service that is provided is the right one, and that's why we do it. That's why we do it across the board, and that's why we're looking at those issues around those social workers. Sir David Amis. Further house to my entry in the register of interest. Ever since uh, former President Gayoom introduced democracy into the Maldives, legitimacy has been challenged. And just like the prophets of doom around Brexit, the recent elections went ahead with no violence and President Solly was elected with a great majority. So would my right honourable friend now redouble her efforts to increase trade, education and cultural links? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I can say, tell Minister. my friend uh, what I hope is news that he will welcome, which is a new embassy is being opened up. Uh, a new embassy is being opened up in the Maldives, and we will, of course, look to ensure what we can do as we look around the world in relation to trade to see what we can do to improve our trade with a number of countries around the world. Pete Wisher. Parliamentary defeats are now a regular feature of her government. She has lost a quarter of her cabinet and 117 of her backbenchers want her gone. Her deal is as dead as the deadest dodo. How many more indignities can this Prime Minister endure before she realises that she is the biggest part of this problem and for goodness sake, just go? Prime Minister! The, uh, the UK government has negotiated a deal with the European Union which delivers on the referendum result. I know the honourable gentleman doesn't want to deliver on the referendum result. He wants, he wants to ensure he wants to ensure that the UK stays inside the European Union. Uh, at the same, at the, talking about the economy at the same time as he also supports taking Scotland out of the Union of the United Kingdom, which, which is much more important economically for the people of Scotland. The people of Scotland know that remaining in the United Kingdom is their best future. Volunteering services are enormously important, and none more so than the RNLI, who put their lives at risk, and often are rescuing people who are making perilous crossings to try and get into this country as well. Isn't it time that we looked at the funding associated with the RNLI? Many people think it's a service that is funded by the government, and it's time we gave some money towards it. He's absolutely right about the absolutely vital role that the RNLI play. Um, And of course, the RNLI, as she says, many people don't realise the RNLI is entirely funded by voluntary contributions. And I would pay tribute to all those across the country who raise funds for the RNLI, including, if she may allow me, uh, the branch, Sonning branch, in my own constituency. Rachel Maskell. Thank you, Mr Speaker. York has been in shock, as we have learnt that 11 homeless people in our city died last year. And whilst we know this is an issue across the nation, we know substance misuse services have been cut. We know the social housing hasn't been built in our city. And we know that mental health services are desperately underfunded and understaffed. Prime Minister, I don't want to hear what you have done, because clearly it has failed. I want to know what you're going to do differently so no homeless person dies this year. Prime Minister! Every death of someone while hopeless, homeless or sleeping rough on our streets is one too many. And that's why you know, we have the commitment in relation to rough sleeping to ending it by 2027 and halving it by 2022. We've committed, she says she doesn't want to know what we've done, but we have committed over 1.2 billion to tackle homelessness and rough sleeping. And she mentions mental health service and asks what are we going to do in the future. What we're doing in the future is putting an extra 2.3 billion into mental health services to ensure that we're providing those mental health services for those people who sadly currently are not able to access them. Paul Scully. Mr Speaker, more Londoners voted to leave the EU than voted for the current Mayor of London. Ah. So whilst he's swanning around Europe talking about Brexit rather than his responsibilities like crime, housing and transport, does my right honourable friend agree with me that if he does insist on being a Brexit diva, he should concentrate on telling his side to actually vote for this deal? Yeah. To give yeah. 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 Prime Minister. 
to my honourable friend, I absolutely agree. Uh, and that what the Mayor of London should be doing is looking at what delivers on the vote, overall vote of the people of London, and what uh, uh, on the vote that my uh, honourable friend referred to in terms of the people of London, and on what delivers in a way that protects the best interests of Londoners, and that is to vote for this deal. Meg Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister has had 20 dancing rebels, has promised five golden trade agreements and has had one big defeat. And yet she still can't find her withdrawal agreement. Has she checked her pear tree? <laughs> the Prime Minister! I think, I think it, was, it was a good attempt, but Christmas happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Dr Julian Lewis! According to that invaluable website, theyworkforyou.com, the Prime Minister has assured this House on no fewer than 74 previous occasions that we will be leaving the EU on the 29th of March. Will she categorically confirm today that there's absolutely no question at all of delaying that date? Prime Minister! I'm happy to repeat what I have said previously, that we will be leaving the European Union on the 29th of March. I want us to leave the European Union on the 29th of March with a good deal that's on the table. Mrs Emma Lewell-Buck. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My constituents, Sarah and Chris Cookson, lost their little boy Charlie in 2013. Since then, they have devoted their lives to helping other families and children with life-limiting conditions via their charity, the Charlie Cookson Foundation. On Boxing Day, they gave birth to Carter John Cookson. He had three cardiac arrests in one day. After a success unsuccessful operation, he is now fighting for his life in need of a heart transplant. Carter has only been given a matter of weeks to live. Will the Prime Minister join me today in raising awareness to help us find a heart for little baby Carter? Prime Minister. First of all, uh, join the Honourable Lady in commending the work that the Cookson's have done with the Charlie Cookson Foundation in raising funds for those uh, children and babies with life threatening conditions. Can I say I'm sure that the sympathies of the whole House are with the family at this very, very difficult time. Um, Obviously, uh, she's outlined some of the specifics of the case, but what I will do is ensure that the relevant minister at the Department of Health and Social Care meets the Honourable Lady to discuss this issue further. We do want to change the culture on organ donation to save more lives. Uh, That's why we're planning to introduce the new opt-out system in England from 2020. And the new law will be known as Max and Kira's law in honour of Max Johnson, who received a heart from Kira Ball, who sadly lost her life in a car accident. But it's a tragic case that the Honourable Lady has outlined, and I'll ensure that a minister from the department speaks with her about it. Thank you. Order. 